Okay, recording. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Transplant Infectious Disease Podcast. Today, I'm very fortunate to have my uh, colleague, who is the Medical Director of Transplant Infectious Disease, Assistant Professor of Medicine and Surgery at Virginia Commonwealth University, Megan Morales. How are you doing? Hi, Shmuel. Good morning. I'm, I'm so glad to be here with you. Terrific. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey to the transplant infectious disease. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't remember ever wanting to do anything other than being a physician. So even from a very young age, I I think my calling was medicine. But in college, I had gotten into doing some, some work and scholarship around HIV work, which I think sort of started to draw me toward infectious diseases and some emergency preparedness work and, and things too. So I did consider emergency medicine as well. But Reflecting on this, I remember having a very aha moment in my medicine clerkship of this is where I belong, doing the deep dives and the follow up and uh, really enjoyed the the puzzle of the bug drug host interaction and, and really enjoyed that quite a lot. And then in residency, I really have to just give credit to the amazing mentors and to the, the Georgetown ID family, really. So this was just prior to when we instituted the mandatory match in ID. So Dr. Kumar told me she signed me up in her golden pen that I would be one of her fellows. So it was it was ordained <laughs> and, and then loved my time at Georgetown. Just a phenomenal training experience. And then had the immense privilege of joining you all at Hopkins for a transplant ID year, which was just phenomenal and just loved working with you and Dr. Avery and Dr. Mara was still there at the time, Dr. Durand, and had just a really wonderful experience there. But the Transplant ID community, as you know, I don't have to tell you, but just has been a wonderful group, just constant learning. The pathology and the science is really interesting. And just the chance to walk alongside our patients and families through this truly life-changing event of transplant before, during, and after is um, really just, I, I just love, you know, being able to be involved and help patients in that way. That's awesome. I mean, we definitely loved having you with us. Uh, you blew by something, which I think I want to uh, ask a little bit more questions. So you're the only firefighter that I know personally. <laughs> Tell us about your experiences as a firefighter, and then also you're an EMT. Yeah, I'm not doing it anymore. Once malpractice comes into the picture, I kind of dropped most of that through residency. But it, it's a little funny, actually. So in high school, we had an intern mentor program. And I have a late fall birthday. So I was not I was old enough as a junior to be in the intern mentor program, but I didn't have my driver's license yet. So I was not able to go intern at the hospital like I really wanted to, but the fire station was within walking distance from my high school. And so I was paired up with a paramedic and, you know, it's just amazing how things work out in life. And, you know, because of my late birthday and mm -hmm. working with a paramedic instead of a doc, I really enjoyed the work. And so I did my firefighter and EMT training which was great experience before medical school of being very active in EMS through college. And I met my husband that way as well, um, who was at the same fire station. And then he went on to become our fire chief there. And so 
I stayed involved sort of peripherally through that as well. Awesome. Awesome. So um, firefighters really do eat chili? <laughs> yeah, they're actually pretty good cooks. So yeah, lots of chili, lots of burgers, big pancake breakfasts. Yeah, they're actually pretty good cooks. Awesome. So um, now after you uh, left fellowship, you joined University of Maryland. And then from there, you went on to VCU, <laughs> where you've been a big part of creating the transplant ID service. Tell us about that process of creating a new service. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's been very exciting. So I loved working in Baltimore, both in fellowship at Hopkins and then moving over to University of Maryland. And both, you know, are really well-established programs, long history and that was wonderful for training and and some early career growth and to have all of that backup and and be able to shoot things off people and have you know big team meetings and collaborative research and things and so I really loved it there but my co-fellow from Georgetown is down here at VCU Dr. Jillian Raybold and so she lured me down here when there was a job opening and thought oh we'll come check it out and come look but when I met with Dr. Bierman who's our chief of ID here, we really very much were on the same page with sort of a growth mindset. And so it just seemed like a wonderful opportunity. And it's really been exciting. And, you know, I interviewed in the late fall of 2019, and little did we know what was coming. Mm -hmm. So I, I started here in February of 2020. Uh, which was, yeah, that was a kind of a busy time. It was a busy time. They rushed through my credentialing and things to get me onto the COVID service um, for that first week. So I actually started my job a little bit earlier than anticipated because of COVID. But I think for all of us in ID, you know, it, it feels like we've accomplished a lot of things in spite of COVID and we've accomplished a lot of things because of COVID. And the the growth here has just been exponential in the last few years. So we're over 500 solid organ transplants a year. It's a big program. Wow. Um, and all of that growth has been just really within the last few years. So there was one transplant ID doc here who um, was doing a great job. and But just with the growth of the program really needed to to keep up with that. And Everywhere structured a little bit differently. Here at VCU for Transplant ID, we're seeing the solid organ transplants, which is a huge volume. We're also covering heme malignancy, bone marrow transplant, and CAR-T, and then a, a little random smattering of other immune-compromised folks. So, so it's a big program. We've gotten now from one physician before I arrived, and then I was by myself for a little bit, up to four of us now. So we've got three docs and one APP, still with, I think, a lot of room to grow. So I, I hope at some point to be able to offer a fellowship as well. We've got the volume and we've got the the research going on. And so and that's something I hope to do in the next few years as well. Well, where are all the patients coming from? Because when I think of Virginia, I think of, you know, there's this transplant in Northern Virginia, there's transplant at UVA, there's maybe transplant in Eastern Virginia. Where are they all coming from? Yeah. So it is a pretty large catchment pool. So we're definitely the largest transplant center within Virginia. Wow. Um, we're doing heart, liver, kidney, pancreas, and we'll be adding back lung soon as well. And so we have certainly the most volume within Virginia. And then particularly for our liver program, we have had a lot of patients referred for or self-referred in many cases from other centers where they're told, you know, they're too sick to be transplanted. And so we do a lot of, particularly for the liver, is very high meld transplants. 
And I'm so proud of our liver team. I mean, our outcomes have we were number three, number six, I think, for volume for livers and number three in, in terms of quality outcomes. So wow. really proud of the work that they've been doing around that. Wow. So shifting gears a little bit, are you still a uh, Terp fan or have you shifted over to uh, other teams? Uh, b- by the way, for the listeners, the Terps are the University of Maryland team. And I became a Terp fan during the time that she was working with me because of Megan's enthusiasms. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, living in College Park, we had our basketball and football season tickets. And so particularly the basketball, I really loved getting to those games. So yeah, we still watch them down here. I have not yet fully converted to being a Rams fan, though. I hope to get to some Rams basketball games in person. We did make it to a Flying Squirrels game, which is our uh, minor league baseball team. So that was actually a lot of fun. That does sound fun. All right. So I was going to ask you about your grandfather, because I know that he played an important part in history. Do you want to talk about that for a second? Sure. Yeah. What a memory you have. So yeah, my my grandfather was uh, Dr. George Morales, or Jorge initially, and changed his name, but um, he was born in Nicaragua, and actually his aunt in Nicaragua, I don't know if you know this part, Shmuel, she was in the first class of gradu- that graduated female physicians in Latin America, wow. um, and so she had a, a very uphill battle. I mean, people would throw things out the window at her and very challenging climate for a woman physician in Latin America at that time. So my grandfather, though, was born in Nicaragua. And then during the Somoza dictatorship, his father, uh, my great-grandfather, was a judge and had convicted one of the, the dictator's family members of forgery. And some of his older brothers started to disappear. Wow. So sent my grandfather and his younger brother to Mexico where it would be safer and never got to return actually to Nicaragua. But he went then through school in Mexico and medical school and then came to the U.S. for his residency in anesthesia, um, which he did up in New York and was in private practice in Georgia for a while and then settled at George Washington University, which is where I went to medical school. So at GW, his claim to fame, I, I suppose, was he was the anesthesiologist for President Reagan at Reagan's attempted assassination. So he, you know, got to meet President Reagan after he recovered and actually exchanged letters regularly. And they had a, a nice ongoing um, relationship there. And then when my grandfather had a stroke later in life, I think I think got a letter uh, still after that and wishing him recovery and um, so that was right before my parents' wedding in 1981 was that shooting. And so as my mom relays it, my grandfather was like quite the, quite a star at the wedding of everyone wanting to hear the story and, and what had happened. Wow, that's an amazing history, uh, which also shows that I'm a bit older than you because I remember the uh, assassination attempt and watching it on, uh, at that time, ABC News. There wasn't cable back then. It was uh, so to try to imagine myself in the position now as a physician being involved, particularly anesthesiologist, where uh, the margin for error is often very narrow. That's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's a neat retelling, and I think it's on YouTube, but it was called The Saving of the President, where they had all of the the medical team make a, a dramatized video of it later, which aired, which is pretty neat to watch. And all of the anesthesia team were actually naturalized citizens. And they had kind of a famous quip with him as he was still 
uh, you know, speaking and and I think trying to joke and put others at ease too, that, you know, they, they were all, uh, oh, you know, now I'm, I have to rewatch it. Now I'm trying to remember if it was, they were all Americans today or they were all Republicans today. It was one or the other, but they had a little quip and now I'll have to rewatch it to remind myself too. Nice. Nice. So shifting gears again, I was wondering if we can talk about a uh, couple of cases. Yeah, great. All right. So this first one, and these will be maybe familiar to you because you have been involved in publications of of those. So the first one is a 35-year-old man at that time who had uncontrolled diabetes mellitus, history of simultaneous liver and kidney transplantations two years previously. He presented with a week of nausea, vomiting, epigastric pain, and one day of coffee ground emesis. On exam, he had scleral icterus, jaundice, epigastric tenderness without rebound, and his labs showed DKA, white count of 15,000, AST and ALT in the several hundreds, and total bilirubin of 24.7. A CT scan showed diffuse gastric wall thickening, gastric cardia pneumatosis, and air in the adjacent gastric vein, superior mesenteric vein, and main, main portal vein without intra-abdominal free air. So what are you thinking at this point? So the gastric wall changes and the LFT elevations could suggest some viral infection like CMV, though, with the leukocytosis, I think would push us more in search for a bacterial infection and potentially with the pneumatosis as well. So For pneumatosis, there's always non-infectious causes we consider, things like ischemia or trauma. Um, No reason to think that particularly here. So circling back to the ID perspective and really thinking about, is it gastric wall pneumatosis? Is it gastric emphysema? Some of those organisms would be E. coli, strep, enterobacter, a lot of the enteric flora, also clostridium or pseudomonas um, have been known to cause emphysematous gastritis. So I think that would sort of round out the differential and want to cover broadly, including empiric therapy. So something like azosin or cefepime metronidazole, and then uh, think about an EGD and, and biopsy while we're starting empiric therapy. Great. So an EGD was done and it showed esophagitis, portal hypertensive gastropathy, severe erythematous gastric mucosa with some evidence of recent bleeding. And the gastric biopsy showed an organism that up until I read the report, I'd never heard of called Clostridium ventriculi. So what is it? How did it get there? And what's going on? Yeah. Clostridium ventriculi is a gram-positive cocci, strict anaerobe, but unique in that it can survive in a very low pH environment. So it's really emerging as a, a human pathogen, sometimes thought to be a bystander, but typically associated with delayed gastric emptying, and then can cause emphysematous gastritis, even evolving to perforation. One thing that's notable on the H&E staining for this organism is that it forms tetrads, um, and so it has a very distinct view on pathology. But likely it's ingested with soil clinging to food or water since it's an environmental bacteria and spore-forming organism, so it's pretty hardy. But probably there's some localized gastric wall infection or a mucosal defect that allows it to to enter and then thrives in that low pH and, and anaerobic environment. Wow. Now, in this particular patient, the liver failure, was that a parallel event or was that related to this infection? 
there were some concerns about adherence and and the immune suppressive drugs. So probably compounded by sepsis and other issues as well. But I think it was some underlying rejection as well. But unfortunately, the with emphysematous gastritis, the mortality is quite high. Mm-hmm. Um, and it because it's you know an emerging pathogen, I think not entirely clear. There's some reports of medical management alone, but many require surgical intervention for this as well. And unfortunately, our our patient though he started to improve, um, ultimately succumbed, and sepsis was certainly a, a leading issue with that, despite aggressive medical therapy as well as surgical intervention. Great. Now, this this has been published, and it's in uh, Clinical Infectious Disease, and I saw that some of the co-authors were fellows or maybe even residents at the time. Tell us a little bit about the process of mentoring people to uh, get them some of these publications that get them on their way. Absolutely. It's it's so nice to have trainees on service with us. And in the world of transplant infectious diseases, I think we see no shortage of uh, very interesting pathology. And I know you've done some work around emerging pathogens as well, Shmuel. So particularly in this group, you know, they often can be sort of the canary in the coal mine um, Mm -hmm. of emerging pathogens, be it bacterial, fungal, certainly. And so um, just keeping an eye out and you know, in this case, it was a pathogen that I had to read and learn about um, and didn't know a lot about. This one we published and and our fellow who's now an attending in practice, but she did a wonderful job with it. And we published this one as a photo quiz, again, because of how it forms the tetrads. And so before waiting for culture growth, just seeing those forms on H&E with pathology could be something to trigger that that that's what what you're looking at here. And so. you know, I think seeing these things, it's good. And once the fellow's doing the deep dive, they've got all the information, they've done the literature search. And so then it's really just working together to get that written up and and share what we've learned. And it's such a good way for us to learn and really cement that and to to learn from all of these cases as well. So it's really wonderful to to work with fellows and, and residents on a lot of these cases where they're, you know, they're they're doing that deep dive and, and learning so much. And then, you know, all of us can really benefit from that. And getting those reports out, which can be time consuming and can be uh, a little bit of a pain, has significant advantages. One is it can get the uh, trainee or the fellow into the process of knowing what it takes to publish things in terms of the uh, meticulousness that needs to be done to make it publication worthy. And then also just in terms of navigating the websites for the journal publications and communicating with the editors and the reviewers. Also important is that information not transmitted is information lost. And having that information out there as to what you did, that may be the only thing that's out there for a clinician in another hospital who's contending with this issue. So I think it's very important, which brings us to the next case. (laughs) I wish I had a little music to the kids' (laughs) music. Yeah. All right. This is also reported by you and your team. 44-year-old man at the time, history of FSGS, that's focal segmental segmenting glomerulosclerosis and end-stage renal disease because of that, for which he underwent kidney transplant times three over a uh, several decade time period. Most recent was a decade before this presentation. He presented with three days of severe diffuse headache, subjective fevers, 
no real temperature that was measured. 37.9 was uh, one of the highest that was measured. He was on tacrolimus, mycophenolate, and prednisone. I believe the dose was 10 milligrams per day of prednisone. And he reported neck stiffness associated with headaches. When asked about animal exposures, he said that he had worked in a warehouse and was regularly exposed to wild birds and rodents. His physical examination showed discomfort, but no signs of toxicity or neurological deficits. Cranial nerves were intact, speech and motor abilities and sensation were unremarkable. Basic labs were unremarkable, but he did have this cerebral spinal fluid analysis, which showed 852 white cells, 86% of them polys, protein of 149 and glucose is normal. What are you thinking and what are you doing at this stage? Yeah, so certainly a, a concerning lumbar tap here, very high white count, mostly polys. And so your number one, two, and three is that you're covering empirically uh, with meningitis coverage, having presented especially with a stiff neck and headaches. And so sort of all fits there. And then certainly, it, you know, he's pretty far out from transplant. So essentially at risk for a lot of the community sort of pathogens, but additionally being immune compromised, thinking of a, a little bit broader range of pathogens, including listeria and other things. Always have to consider still viral though with his CSF pattern, uh, certainly concerning for a bacterial meningitis. And so for this patient, he got started on ceftriaxone and vanc in the ER. Um, and then when we saw him, had expanded the, the ceftriaxone to miropenem, still getting good CNS penetration, but a little bit broader while we're undergoing work up here, given his immune compromise status. Great. So as things roll out, his blood cultures are now growing some gram-negative rods. And and I think that this, this really uh, sort of grabs me, this case, in that he's feeling kind of yucky doesn't really have a fever. His labs look pretty unremarkable. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there he is having like lots of white cells in the CSF and blood cultures are turning positive. Just to show you that whoever decided to aggressively evaluate him made a good decision because I can see patients like this perhaps being seen in the emergency room and sent home saying, yeah, it looks viral, particularly in the era of COVID. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I totally agree. And you know, it's it's not a small thing to recommend a lumbar puncture or invasive procedures, but especially in this population, have to have a relatively low threshold for some of these things. And it was interesting that, especially being gram negative, you'd expect high fevers um, and maybe, you know, a lot sicker presentation. But uh, yeah, fortunately, we had the data here for him and and he was inpatient and on IV therapy. But yeah, totally agree that, you know, we can see quite a range in, in presentation in, in this group and have to have a, a fairly low threshold for really doing a thorough evaluation and workup. So when I'm hearing uh, gram-negative rods in the bloodstream in association with meningitis, I'm thinking, okay, maybe this is E. coli, a little weird for a grown-up, but, you know, he's immunocompromised. I'm thinking maybe if he's from an area that is endemic for strongyloid, maybe this is those cases that you hear about disseminated strongyloidiasis with gram-negative meningitis. I'm thinking haemophilus influenza and maybe uh, tularemia. Maybe there were bunnies involved, not just the birds, but I'm not thinking Bordetella heinzii. What is that? Right. Yeah, it was a surprise for us. And I guess our theme today is emerging pathogens. So certainly Bordetella is something that we think of in terms of respiratory infections, pertussis, kennel cough, which we 
you know, have seen mm-hmm. it sometimes in lung transplant patients and others as well, that uh, bronchoseptics. But so, yeah, for Bordetel NCI was another one where, you know, we had to read and, and educate ourselves a little bit more about this. So it lacks some of the virulence factors of other Bordetella species. Um, and so that's why it may not have the same sort of respiratory symptoms and propensity for respiratory infections as other Bordetella species. And so this particular strain, it's been reported causing um, endovascular infections, bacteremia, wound infections, meningitis. And so really, as it's being identified more frequently um, because of Malditoff and other more advanced diagnostics, may present in different ways. So outside of the respiratory tract again, And so, you know, this is another situation of when we have these emerging pathogens, I mean, this grew from blood and CSF, certainly not something we're going to ignore, but I think it's helpful to understand a little bit more about these emerging pathogens and, you know, what are they typically susceptible to, how may they present differently to help us understand when these show up, perhaps something in more of a wound culture of really what is the significance of this organism. And so this was another one uh, where we, you know, really had to to read and, and learn more about. And it, interestingly, it's associated with poultry. We don't know. Our best speculation was the the wild bird exposure um, in his place of work may may have been his exposure, though not a lot is known about it yet. And so we we really don't know exactly where it came from. But that that was our our best guess at the time. Wow. Wow. Yes, definitely uh, emerging pathogen theme, which is, of course, a theme in transplant infectious disease, because as you mentioned, the canary in the coal mine or the the, the patients that are most susceptible are often going to be patients that you and I see. Mm-hmm. In the last few minutes, tell us about this new venture that, that you're doing, uh, Mid-Atlantic Transplant ID Society. Yeah, so exciting. So this is really our mutual effort. So you have to take half the credit here, Shmuel. So We had our first meeting of the Mid-Atlantic Transplant ID Society yesterday, which I thought was wonderful. Um, And so this is something that we had talked about a couple of years back as sort of a Baltimore, Washington transplant ID thing. And then, of course, I had to expand that now that I'm down here in Virginia. Exactly. Including Maryland, D.C. and Virginia. And so tried to, to catch all of the folks who are working in transplant ID or just have an interest in transplant ID. And so we met via Zoom yesterday for our first meeting, and we had a great turnout. We had almost 40 folks mm-hmm. tuned in, and we had transplant ID, ONC ID, PEDS ID. We had both docs and APPs. We had some trainees on. So I thought it was really great. And one of our, our goals is, is to meet monthly and share cases and research or new guidelines work, whatever folks are working on. But also not to have just purely didactics, but I think also to have a forum for us to discuss some challenging issues in real time, difficult cases, and so to really make it practical and useful for everybody because um, we all have a lot of Zoom meetings these days. So I don't think anyone needs just another meeting layered on top, but the feedback yesterday was great and I think people are really excited. I think it's going to be a really good forum. So we filled the we filled the hour yesterday. Didn't even make it to hot topics, but um, I hopefully the next time the valgancyclovir tablet shortage, which has just emerged in the last week or so, I was hoping to hear what other centers are doing in 
Hopefully the shortage may ease by the next time we meet, but sort of timely issues like that, I think will be great mm-hmm. for us mm-hmm. all to compare notes and and be able to hear what everyone's doing. No, I, I think that's great. And think that the chance to create community amongst doctors that deal with these issues is is fantastic. I know that sometimes um, transplant infectious disease doctors can feel a little bit lonely because when you present cases to your colleagues, unless they're immersed in the field, they may not know what to do because uh, so I have a uh, a resident that will be coming with me and working with me next Tuesday in clinic. And and I warned her ahead of time. I said, you need to know that transplant infectious disease has a lot of art in it and that we're not always constricted by the golden straitjacket of quote unquote evidence-based medicine. And um, because for many of the situations we deal with, there just aren't going to be those randomized control trials that instruct us what to do. So having community of people that are dealing with these issues and can share their experiences can be very helpful and very comforting for a patient. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And because it's a regional conference, you know, we may actually be sharing a lot of patients. So mm-hmm. uh, for instance, Sintera Norfolk General was on with us yesterday. And I know a lot of our transplant patients, but that live out there a few hours away, maybe following up with them. And so, yeah, it's definitely a good opportunity. and. I think that's a great point that you highlighted. There's there's a, a very lot of art in transplant ID along with the science. And um, so just being able to hear others' experience. And I already have some difficult cases, uh, mostly mycobacterial and transplant that I'm excited to get input from others on um, that, you know, they, they just don't fit the exact mold of the general guidelines and things. And so I, I'm really excited about it. I think it's just going to be a, a great a great group. And Dr. Nicole Visicelli did our first presentation yesterday with the donor-derived Chagas um, that she uh, really just, I think, knocked it out of the park and, you know, so helpful to hear others' experiences and input around that as well. She did. And, and it, it was a fascinating case, very well done. And also it was very nice to have people in the group that are on national uh, efforts to look at donor-derived infections. So being able to get their perspective as well on both the patient care aspect, but also on the uh, national policies. So one of the issues that came up is that there's actually uh, a question out there as to whether the uh, organ procurement procurement organizations should be checking for uh, serology, for strongyloides and for shagas. And one of the people in the uh, talk, Mike Eisen and another one, Robin Avery, shared with it, This is there's actually a comment period right now for the public to comment on that very issue. So it also connects us to some of the uh, global issues that infect- transplant infectious disease deals with. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I didn't know that yesterday. So I was glad to, to learn about that comment period being open. And yeah, so already great collaborations and it was great to hear some of those experiences. And some of our military colleagues on the call yesterday had chimed in with sort of their experience and and things with Chagas, not only in humans, but from the veterinary side. And, you know, these are things that we don't we don't get to learn and hear otherwise. So I I, I, I took so much away from it. I thought it was great. Yeah. So for the listeners, I learned that Chagas is endemic in South Texas, but not in humans yet. Hopefully uh, they'll stay that way. And that it's it's an issue in working dogs. So uh, in the military, some of the military dogs have had Chagas. And then there is concern that it could then be passed from canine to human in the military. Did not know that until 24 hours ago. Yeah. Yeah. Always learning. That's what we love about transplant ID, right? Yeah. So in the last minutes that we have, any last thoughts that you would like to share with the listeners? Yeah, I I 
excited about, well, you have, you know, of course, some some clinical-based research going on, but another thing I, I'm hoping to do more of a dive into this year is a lot of TID workforce issues. And a lot of that's come out of, you know, growing the program here and what's a an average staffing ratio at large transplant centers, medium transplant centers, small, how are FTEs allocated, who's supporting FTEs and there's just not a lot of transparency around these issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think as, you know, we have more and more fellows coming out, TID trained and transplant centers everywhere are growing. These are, I think, issues that are relevant to all of us. And especially in the setting of, you know, hopefully emerging from a pandemic now and burnout and other things. And so I'm hoping to to get out a survey this year to kind of even just get a snapshot about that. And I have to put a plug for the IDCOP mentoring program mm-hmm. because um, Dr. Shelley Morris was paired with me as a mentor and she just, her help was invaluable in, in sort of growing in our program and, and next steps. And while we still have a lot of room to grow, just was invaluable. So, you know, the resources are out there, the mentorship's out there, and the IDCOP is doing really great things to to get people linked up. And so look out for those kind of opportunities to uh, really learn from, from folks who have been through this. And hopefully we'll we'll have some more workforce research and information ahead of us. Yeah, it's kind of an amazing time in that we're living and working with the giants in the fields like Shelley Morris, like Emily Bloomberg, like I work with. Robin Avery and yesterday, uh, Jack Bennett joined us. It's it, it's really um, such a treat to, yeah. to work and and learn from these folks. Absolutely, yeah, and 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 that that they're not just alive but taking care of patients. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean this is such an exciting time for transplant ID. Really being at this inflection point of growth and being able to learn from all of that experience is really wonderful. Well, thanks for joining us. And thank you, everybody, for joining us for the Transplant ID podcast. Thanks, Joel. Until next time. Bye-bye.